the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I am absolutely thrilled to have with me the ladies of Quick. Great women in compliance. I have Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. And we're going to talk about a topic that uh, every compliance practitioner needs to have familiarity with. But I don't think we really talk about it enough anymore. And that's written standards. That means policies and procedures. It means controls. It means perhaps your code of conduct. But it's a uh, Given the evolution of compliance programs from largely paper-driven programs 10 to 15 years ago, it's still a backbone of compliance and a compliance program. So first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome to the Compliance Handbook. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. So I was wondering if I could just, uh, uh, for the listeners who don't know you all, uh, could you give a little bit about your professional background? And Mary, since you've traveled the furthest to visit with us, why don't we start with you? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Well, I'm from New Zealand, and uh, the United States is the fifth country that I've lived in across four continents. I started working in New Zealand for um, regulators in the areas of data privacy and antitrust, which was a nice little uh, platform for me to then springboard into um, a corporate compliance role at Tata Communications, helping to, to build and roll out their global compliance function. And that was my first foray into the anti-corruption world. And I would add, uh, for those of you who don't know already, a lot of my learnings from outside of my uh, internal supervisor and, and mentors actually came from Tom Fox, who was unknown to me at the time, uh, lived on the other side of the world, and uh, I was voraciously uh, reading his, his blog posts. Uh, I also spent time in the Middle East working as the head of compliance globally for Agreco, which is a UK company. So immersed myself in the UK Bribery Act uh, at that time and uh, then was lured back to uh, the excitement of, of Asia and uh, Hong Kong, which is my birthplace, is where I spent um, some time working for a compliance consultancy. And that role led me to where I am now, which is Fresenius Medical Care, a German dialysis company. And uh, I've had a number of different roles at Fresenius. There was a point where I had been with the company for three years and worked in three different countries. Uh, most recently, I find myself in the United States in Boston. And uh, I am the uh, global head of culture of integrity and compliance education for our compliance program. And I'm seconded to our legal department working on FCPA monitorship work streams in that role. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm delighted and, and hello to all of your listeners. Lisa? Hi, um, I'm Lisa Fine. I am currently the uh, senior counsel and director of compliance at Pearson, which is Pearson Education. It's the world's learning company. Um, so I get the opportunity there to be dealing with the things that I really love the most, which are you know, books and learning and then get to do compliance. So I feel very fortunate for that. Um, I started my career in law at a, at a law firm, a large New York based law firm and ran a pro bono program as well as did litigation and ran the D.C. part of that. Um, and that was where I really started my career, thinking about the idea of the importance of having organizations do the right thing and be able to contribute to 
um, the world and and to other causes that were important. I didn't realize at the time that that was the beginning of what was going to become my ethics and compliance career. So after that, I, I spent several years at the firm and then I ended up taking a little hiatus, which I talk about a lot um, and was living in a small town in Utah, Park City, Utah, and also worked in disability advocacy. So that was another component. Um, after I moved back to Washington, D.C., Unlike Mary, I really mostly lived in one country, though had to always had the goal and objective to travel a bit as part of my work. Um, I worked at a, a company called Gate Gourmet or Gate Group, um, which is airline catering, which is an unbelievably interesting and fascinating world of compliance because you have pretty much every issue you could possibly think of from you know, air traffic security to immigration to policies to procedures. And you know all of these are different things that where where I think policies and written standards become critically important. That at that job was about around the time where I also got to meet Tom Fox and again start using the different um, materials and wisdom and guidance. So I feel very excited and fortunate and grateful for the opportunity to speak with you today about the compliance handbook. So um I introduced the topic of of written standards and I really wanted to start with kind of a basic maybe I'll start with you Lisa. Why do you think uh, a company, a workforce, an organization needs clearly articulated written standards for their backbone of their compliance program? I think on a most basic level, everybody needs to know what the rules are at any given time. Um, I think that it's really important to have the standards written, especially as, as we talk about the idea of ethical decision making. That's what we want all of our employees to do. So for us to be able to do that in the best way possible, we need to provide them clear, understandable, not written like you know, 20 pages of lawyer writing. Not that I have a criticism of that, but you know, the deepest analysis in the world is not as helpful to somebody as an employee who wants to understand what they can do in certain situations, conflicts of interest, gifts, hospitality, the code. So I think it's really important to tell people what the expectations are and help facilitate their decision making. Mary, I'd like to pose the same question to you, but I'd like to add a new wrinkle or a little bit different wrinkle, which is you have worked literally across the globe. How can you write policies and procedures that can apply to a multinational company in areas diverse as many of the places you've worked in? Mm, that, that's a great question, Tom, and I think it harks back to the phrase from the Department of Justice is that there is no one-size-fits-all compliance program, and we're not expected to to do that. And so we need to think carefully about our audience and what's going to work best. And for me, what that always comes down to is using the simplest terms possible, breaking things down to their absolute basic, thinking about the, the lowest common denominator and, um, and getting feedback from your colleagues as well. It can be um, tempting to, to go about doing a compliance program, getting excited about it, pushing it out and forgetting that you are not your audience. Your audience are your stakeholders in the business who have completely different backgrounds to you. So involving them at the earliest stage when you're doing your policy drafting, when you're considering how am I going to get this message out, how am I going to train on it, involving your colleagues from various different demographics in the business, so different business units, different countries, different levels of seniority, asking them, uh, what's going to work for them uh, and, and incorporating and very incorporating them in various steps of the process is how I consider to be 
the, the best way to cover off all of your various different bases. So you really uh, kind of led into the next topic that I wanted to explore, Mary, and I'll just follow up with you, which is um, how do you think about drafting policies and procedures? And when I started, uh, Lisa was right. It was written by lawyers for lawyers, 20 pages, legal citations, just beautiful legal writing. And it was completely irrelevant to the business unit. Even the person who was trying to do the right thing and trying to read on their own so they knew the rules and they didn't violate them, they had trouble interpreting those. Um, we we're, we're hopefully have evolved past that, but how do you, you've talked about getting the business unit uh, involved in the drafting process. Could you maybe take us through that thought or if you had a major uh, revision to your uh, policies and procedures? Yeah, what, what, what would I do? So, um, the, the first thing I guess is that for me, uh, and this probably would make me a terrible transactional or, or corporate lawyer, um, the idea of a 20 page policy really turns me off. I think I'm way too lazy um, to, to want to write that and expect colleagues to then get excited about reading it. So going back to the idea of simplicity, um, <clears throat> my uh, thought process when creating documentation, whether it be a training or drafting a policy is what is the way I can get my message across um, in the, the shortest possible time or using the least words possible? So I like to boil things down to their absolute basic and 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 uh, pull out or extract what is the key principle that I want to get across. And I think for policies, um, we need to move beyond that just strict text all across the page. We want to do learning aids. So things like incorporating a case study or a frequently asked questions um, learning aid to help people understand what is it that's behind the theory. I, I think there are very few people in the world who really enjoy straight out academic or didactic learning. And you want to make the, the learning come to life and apply it to people's job roles. And of course, that in and of itself is a bit of an art because in compliance, we're oftentimes not the ones on the front lines doing the, the various roles or even in the back office. I know my back office role in compliance, I'm not an HR specialist. I can't count. I'm not in finance. Um, and so the, 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 the trick of it, and this is where the consultation, I think, really comes in, is understanding that you have this very narrow viewpoint as a compliance officer. And so being able to write for a, a wider audience, going back to the absolute basics, distilling the key principles, getting feedback from others and getting examples from people in the business or asking them about transactions they find tricky, whether it be reviewing an expense claim, for example, and, and making a little um, short little box on how, how to best review certain documentation before you approve it for processing. Uh, that kind of thing, I think, is is more of what we've moved towards than that 20-page full of text and Times New Roman font. So, Lisa, working at an educational company uh, and uh, in regard to your policies and procedures, do you see a really a, not a, an evolution, but the education communication style that your company uses, is that really reflected in its code of conduct? And uh, how do you think through or how would you think through if you had to draft one or if you had to revise one? Well, I think that for our company, similar to any company, 
you want to use something that resonates with the business as a whole. So we do think about it more of an educational sort of thematic big picture to it. But within that, the, the business as a whole, like so many, is so diverse. I mean, you have working with online education versus sales versus different. We also have assessment, test assessments. So people's approaches are different. So it really is, and Mary was talking about this, you know, boiling down to key, you know, the key values that are important of who we are. I, you know, I think it, the code in a lot of ways is our ethos and the policies are the regulations to explain them. Um, so it's maybe like a constitution in the U.S. So one of the things that I think is important is to get the viewpoints of the different stakeholders in the business as we, we go through it to make sure that what we're saying is understandable. There are certain things, you know, as you know, we need to have in in, in the code, um, you know, whether it's you, whether it's you need to do third party due diligence to these are our values of how we treat one another. Um, there's also a way to best communicate that. And fortunately, at our organization, and it's like at many, we have people who are experts in the internal and external communications. So one thing I always do is try to work closely um, in any any communication, but particularly related to the code, um, is is how to get it in the right voice and to make me sound less legal and lawyer. Because I, I do know that even though I'm constantly making efforts to have a more discussion, conversational style. I can't take my training completely out of me and I would like to cover all the all the bases sometimes. So I think the reason I'm mentioning that is it's so important to be collaborative with people who see, read and interpret it differently. So now you've got your code written, you're ready to roll out and that means training. Lisa, let me maybe start with you. How do you think through training? And I wanna break it down into pre-2020 and post-2020, because many of the things that we thought we had to do before, maybe there are other ways to do them, but would you advocate a, a live training? Would you advocate an online training? Would you advocate a mix of both? Is it, is it important to, to you know, reach out and be seen by the troops? How would you have thought through training on policy and procedures or your code? That's a great question. Um, our employee base, I think, like many, are so um, are so dispersed all over the world. I really do think a combination of in person and online. And lately, I've been thinking a lot about quizzes and burst trainings, so that you do you know a lot of smaller bites as opposed to you know one big training. But I again think that different areas of the business and different issues the code of conduct everyone should in my mind have some sort of training um and also you know make sure they understand and comprehend it many languages other uh, issues now you've got certain policies for example um, gifts and hospitality where you use the number of people in a business who it's a huge issue for and some people who will never encounter it so i think targeted training and that you want to look at what the concerns are, what the group is, and what will work best with them and vary it, I mean, from year to year as well. Um, so I don't think some of that has changed as much pre and post 2020, but I be basically because of location and what makes sense. Although in certain situations, it will always make more sense to be in person and do that. And we haven't been able to do that. But I, I think doing different things, targeting it to different groups and trying to keep it interesting and vibrant is important. Mary, if I could pose that question to you and maybe mm -hmm. add a little twist that uh, mm -hmm. having worked outside the United States 
and been perhaps on the receiving end of code training or policies and procedure training, were there things that you thought worked or didn't work that you that inform your views of how you should uh, put on training now? Yeah, I think so. So like Lisa, I agree, there's got to be um, based understanding of the code of conduct for, for all of your employees. And then similarly, when you want to target it, we call that specialized training in, in my company. One of the things that I found that works really well, and I would say that this is an informal way of following up your code training, and it's an idea I got from uh, Ricardo Palafone from Broadcat, is to, to gamify some of the concepts. And I love this for when I get invited to a country's uh, kickoff meeting for the year and I'm invited to present and I don't want to just stand there like a law professor or a lecturer. Um, and I, I break them up into teams and the code of conduct exercises, I set up a, a laptop um, and, or essentially a workstation area with loads of different red flag issues and a few sort of decoys thrown in there as well that aren't actually compliance issues, but just to help make it more challenging. So things like you might have a to-do list with several things on it and the little red flag issue might be um, something like um, call Janet from uh, Baxter, which would be one of our big competitors. And so you've got your little antitrust issue there and then a, an email on my screen saying, dear mum, um, you know, uh, how's it all going? Miss you. Um, just wanted to, to, to give you a little heads up. We're thinking about buying this company soon. I think you should buy more stocks and, you know, have that insider trading uh, type issue there. Um, and then I take a designer shopping bag and then put a little post-it on it saying, you know, from your favorite vendor. Um, and so the idea is that the, the groups can um, identify all of the issues. You turn it into a contest and find out, you know, who who has identified the most issues. And so that type of activity is not really the same as what, what I would consider as a, a documented exercise like the code of conduct training, that's just to reinforce concepts and to make a compliance presentation come to life a little more. Um, what I would say is that I can't do this in a COVID uh, environment. So for the for the meantime, uh, because you know everyone sort of huddles over the desk together, you know, um, pointing out things. So um, really relying for the moment on um, the online training. So working on, on that at the moment. Uh, I'm super excited about incorporating a data analytics aspect to the code of conduct training this year. Um, and uh, hopefully that'll be a good um, spin on it, a little something different. So let me pick up on something that Lisa said, which was targeted training. And then Mary, one of the examples you mentioned because it resonated with me. Uh, so I've lived uh, outside the United States in the Middle East as well. And if you were an American work, working in Dubai, you worked in energy. And we all socialized together. You know, we did things together. It was a, a community of ex American Yank expats. We were all in energy. Uh, and of course, we shared information. We all had the same customers. We all had the same products. We all had the same services. And you mentioned that uh, calling your competitor. Well, we were friends with all our competitors. How do you deliver a targeted um, communication just to remind, gently remind people of the antitrust obligations? Is that something that is a part of policy and procedure training in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, the things that I've um, just done on that is asked an, an executive um, to help me record a video um, that, that really um, emphasizes this point. And um, Tom, I also worked in energy in Dubai. So <laughs> I think that 
pretty much uh, illustrates your point, but I'm not American. Um, and so um, uh, I, I, I thought about the concept that so often when you work in uh, a certain company, it's very common for your colleagues to move to competitors, right? Because that's people's uh, specialist area. Um, it makes sense that they would, when they move on, they're gonna go to a company that's uh, relevant to the, the, the company that you work for. So one of the things that I asked this executive to cover was, um, you know, we, um, we often make friends with people in the company and that's a good thing. And it's also a good thing to continue these relationships. But please remember that information that this individual may have been privy to while working for um, us uh, that information can no longer be shared with them. You just can't talk about those topics. And to be on the absolute safe side, you know, avoid X, Y, Z things. Um, and if you've got any questions about um, these types of conversations, don't hesitate to come to us and we can chat about them in further detail if you have any specific concerns. But remember to, to not talk business uh, with people, even if they used to work for us. Um, it's it's natural to, to maintain your relationships with former colleagues. Um, it is not okay and could be risky, however, if you talk shop with them. Ladies, we're nearing the end of our time for this uh, episode, but I wanted to turn to the great women in compliance. And I wanted to, uh, to visit with you a little bit because it struck me that one of the things that I've observed is uh, I don't know if you plan to take it in the direction it's gone or it just grew organically, but it seemed to me very early on you were interested in creating a community. You created uh, the hashtag GWIC, you created the LinkedIn profile, and it seems you have created engagement in a group and in a way that wasn't available before. And I just wondered uh, if you could have a few, each have a few words about what that engagement has been, and can you engage colleagues in a way to to get advice on topics like written standards or or anything else? Is that the type of engagement you have, or is it something else? And Mary, you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Tom. So I think you're right, but the the overarching thing uh, I think has been Felicia and myself. We never really set out to um, to a, to make a platform probably as big and uh, well known as it has become. It's been a um, pleasant surprise to us how much our community has grown and how close knit it is, and the fact that people do interact with each other and um, and the speakers that have been uh, on the podcast as well. So um, we are proud of fostering a community, of fostering a safe space where people can uh, meet others, go to them to to share ideas um, or to talk things through. Um, it wasn't quite uh, something that we thought would be this big um, and we're, I think, again, pleasantly surprised and proud of, of that aspect. So Lisa, I um, also wanted to pose that to you. But, and uh, when you uh, conclude, could you tell people who wanted to uh, find out more about the great women in compliance where they could go? Okay, absolutely. I, I absolutely echo what Mary said and I have to give credit. Mary put in the LinkedIn group, I think, before we had even you know, released any podcasts. And I think it really became a huge part of what we did. So that is, if for any of your listeners who want to be a part of this community, I'll throw that in right now, the Great Women in Compliance uh, LinkedIn community. And we, we, we love people to join, women, men. Um, you know, it's it's a really become something that, like like Mary said, we didn't anticipate, 
but it has become a separate part of what, what WIC has become, mostly because the community and the individuals share with one another. It's not really just about the speakers or we organize events or things like that. What one speaker talks about may resonate and another person may connect and they build their own independent relationships, which I think there's always a need for it. I think there always is a need to do that organically. Um, so that's part of the community, which then grew with the book, um, which is um, sending the elevator back down. And we just have been thrilled about that. Um, and as well as where we started and the main one of the main places you can find us is to come full circle, Tom, is on the Compliance Podcast Network. Um, that was the first at home for us and really are very grateful. So there are a lot of places you can find the, the podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, on with Corporate Compliance Insights, who we have a wonderful partnership, um, but we can really find it on, on Tom's Compliance Podcast Network. Um, and the people within that community, as well as anyone you're talking to now, we are always happy to talk about policies and procedures. We geek out on them. Well, I love it. Ladies, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to visit with me, and I look forward to seeing what you guys come up with next. Thank you so much, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.